This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 15. Now we ended at a really good place last week. We had, we had taught and focused a lot, especially towards the end of the teaching, on what Jesus was talking about by what actually, what actually defiles a person. And so just a very brief review, and then we'll jump right into verse 21 into the next portion of Scripture. How if we take from verse 16 forward, and it took all of chapter of the first, or it took all of last week's teaching to cover this teaching, but it can distill it from about verse 16 on, where he says, Are ye, are ye yet without understanding? This is Jesus talking to his own disciples. Are you, in other words, do you still not get it? That's what he was asking them. Do you still not get it? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. And what he was talking about was the Pharisees had shown up on the scene at the beginning of this chapter, finding fault with Jesus' disciples because Jesus' disciples, shock, scandal of scandals, dared to eat their lunch without washing their hands first. And so that Sure, that's kind of gross and kind of dirty and certainly unsanitary, but is a million miles removed from being a sin. It's certainly not a sin, but the Pharisees with their hyper, uh, well, I don't say hyper-legalistic because that's just an exaggeration. You're either legalistic or you're not. But with their very legalistic, and I don't even like using that word because it's, it's something that any Christian that lets the word of God inform their life gets accused of being. But the Pharisees in the midst of their a uh, rather legalistic understanding of the word of God counted that as a violation of the word when really all it was a violation of was of the elders' traditions. Now, traditions are fine, but traditions aren't necessarily commandments. And so it's really important to understand the difference between the two. Sometimes traditions are good, but they're not necessarily commandments from the word of God. Sometimes traditions are merely... Uh, expressions of what God has commanded. You have to apply that to your life as an individual and, you, and whole societies sort of sometimes if they're Christian societies or ostensibly Christian societies, they'll uh, try to figure out what's the best way to express this that the Bible commands us to do. What's the best way to express it in our modern society today? So, but they were attributing a sin where there was no sin. And so Jesus explained to the Pharisees, really he rebuked them, and then explained to his disciples, it's not what goes into the body that defiles the man. It's not what goes into a person that defiles him. It's what comes out of him that defiles him. And he explains why in verse 18. He says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. Verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, Thefts, false witness, which is lying, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashen hands defileth not a man. 
Now, there are some that perhaps would be tempted to say, or they would use what Jesus has said here. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. There's some that will be tempted to use that as a justification for things that are not right for them to take into their bodies, okay? So if it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, does, it, does that therefore make it okay to cook heroin in a spoon and shoot that up? Well, of course not. You know, besides the fact that it's illegal, and as Christians, we're supposed to obey the law of the land, okay, at least for a testimony's sake, if nothing else, but it destroys people's judgments. It, it, it creates all kinds of errors. And it, it, errors. It, I mean, I, that's not even the right word to use. Let's just say it destroys judgment and makes people or opens the doors for people to do terrible, terrible things. So of course not. So anything like drugs, alcohol, anything that destroys the judgment, compromises the judgment. Now, even that's not what defiles the man, but it's the effects that that stuff has on the person that causes them to do things that defiles the man. Okay, and I don't want to try to, I don't want to try to hair split that too finely because you can really wrap your brain around an axle when you're trying to find the line between right and wrong instead of just orienting yourself, heart, mind, and soul towards God and what pleases God. That's the safest route all the time. You can never go wrong or scarcely, if ever, go wrong if you just if you just compose your soul and spirit and your affections and set them on things above and have an attitude of what so pleases the Lord, that's what I want to do. And if I get if I get a strong enough admonition from the word of God to distance myself from something that is not pleasing to him, then that's commandment enough for me. That's a good attitude to have. And it's a safe attitude to have. I think Reverend Ryder brought it up recently. It's a. Uh, uh, there's uh, two different people, in, uh, um, two different real keystone figures found in church history that, that each made similar statements concerning the conscience and how we ought to be with our conscience towards God. Martin Luther was one of them and uh, Francis of Assisi. And I don't often quote uh, Catholic saints, uh, but sometimes they had an insight into some things, sometimes very profound insights and it was either Martin Luther, well, between the two of them, they made these statements that to go against an uncertain conscience is neither right nor safe and that one should never go against an uncertain conscience. And there's plenty of backup on that from Scripture right out of Paul's letter to the Romans. So let's get back to what we're talking about here. It's not what goes into the man that defiles him. Okay, fine. So eat all the bacon that you want to. It's not a sin. But don't be a glutton, okay? It's what comes out of a man that defiles him because it's from the heart and from the mind that proceedeth everything that a human being does. Every action that we commit, every word that we speak, every thought that we entertain is at first born in the heart and in the mind. It's born in the inner man and it's born in the inner woman. And then it is, it is at that point when it is born in here that we either disavow and disown it if it is wrong or choose to act on it if it's wrong. Well, right or wrong, you know, whether it's right or wrong. It's born in us first as a notion. And a lot of temptations begin as a passing notion in the mind. Wouldn't it be nice if, well, you know, I could do this or I could do that or I'd really love to partake in this. It always starts out as just a tiny little quiet notion 
And then we have, that's when it's decision time. Well, the first decision time. Is it right or wrong? Yes or no? Is it wrong? Yes. Okay, now I have a choice. Reject it and disavow it and say, no, I will not do this thing. I will not act on this thought. Or entertain it and harbor it and meditate on it until we then eventually act on it. And that's bearing wicked fruit right there when you actually act on it. So he says that it's from out of the heart that proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So if you forget to wash your hands before dinner, no big deal. It's just a little gross. But it's a good practice. So I'll just leave it at that. Let's move on to verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. Ooh, stop right there. What? What? He didn't say anything to her? He ignored her? Is that our Jesus? Did I read that right? I thought in every other place, anybody that came to him for healing or for deliverance or anything got exactly what they needed. But this is different. What's this talking about? Let's read that again. Behold, a woman of Canaan. Well, that's the answer right there. Okay, now this is more of an academic lesson that we're getting out of here, but it's important all the same. Even though it's not necessarily a moral lesson, it's an academic lesson and it's important for us to understand. A woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Why did Jesus do that? Now, I know we haven't read the whole thing yet, but let's look at why. Because it's important to understand. Why did Jesus ignore this woman? Well, he answers that himself in the very next verse, verse 24. But he answered and said, I am not sent unto the I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This woman was a Canaanite. She was not an Israelite. She was not a Jew. She wasn't even among the half breeds. Uh, forgive the expression, but that's how they're commonly referred to. She even she wasn't even among the half breeds of the Samaritans. She was a pure Gentile, which means. Jesus and all Israel being under the law of Moses still at this point, okay? It meant that this Canaanite woman, though she had a need, had no birthright claim to the oracles of God or the blessings and the deliverances of the Lord God of Israel. She was a Gentile. She was not under the law. She was completely outside of the scope of the... Um, of the Mosaic contract, actually the Abrahamic contract, if you will, because I don't even think, I don't think, and I might be a little rusty, I might be wrong on this, my anthropology is a little rusty, but I don't think that the Canaanites were even um, an Hebraic or uh, Abrahamic, a Semitic race, were they? I don't think they were. Anybody who's maybe a little bit more, nobody? All right, you're in the same boat as me, okay? So don't, 
Don't take that as, as, as a dogmatic statement, but I don't think that the Canaanites were even a Semitic race or ethnicity descendants from Abraham. I don't think that they were. The Canaanites, the Canaanites were simply the Canaanites. They came from a different line. They, they were Hamites. Okay, thank you. So there you go. Because you had the Shemites, which are the Semites, which are your Arab and your Aramaic and your Hebrews, which are the Jews, typically. Okay, and then the Hamites was a different one, and I think even... Uh, the um, Shem, Shemites. So there you go. The Canaanites were completely outside of that. And they had no claim. And so Jesus even said it. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Was this Jesus being cold hearted? Well, we know Jesus better than that. We know that that's not Jesus's character. Was so was it him being cold hearted or was it him being obedient to what his father in heaven sent him to do. Messiah was a Jewish Messiah first. Now relax, okay? We're going to cover this at, at some length because none of us here were Jews. I don't think. Any of y'all with Hebrew genes? You maybe want to pay some money, have one of those genetic tests done and find out. I've seen a couple of videos of people that did that and then waited until they got their test results back and then made a video with their genuine reaction. They, they, they were recording themselves when they first opened it up. I've seen some hilarious stuff. I watched one of a woman who was convinced that she was Arab. And it turned out she was everything but Arab. In fact, had Jewish in her lineage, had, had, uh, had, a, had a Jewish grandmother or great grandmother in her lineage. And she about came unhinged. I thought that was funny. I got a kick out of that. Another lady who was convinced that she was. Uh, predominantly, if not entirely, black African. And so she had this genetic test done to find out what tribe she had come from. Came back, she was like 80 or 90% European white with uh, one black grandmother way back, about three generations back. And she didn't know what, to, what in the world to even do about that. It was very revealing. You really see people's true character on the subject of race, ethnicity, and ethnic pride and all of that sort of thing when they do that sort of thing. But to the best of our knowledge, none of us here is Jewish. None of us. You? Really? Well, there you go. 3% Jewish? Right. So you're 3%. Yeah, 3% claim on the oracles of God here in the time period that Jesus was actually on the earth. Remember, the law of Moses was still in effect. And so the law was for the Jews and any Gentile that converted. And this Canaanite woman had not necessarily done that. So she came to Jesus begging mercy. Jesus was not being cold hearted. He was being obedient and true to his mission. But Let's read on, okay? So even the gent or even the even his disciples had the attitude of who's this dog coming around pestering the master? But but Jesus elaborated. So he says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him. So she was persistent. She did not stop, okay? Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, and this is now him talking to her. It is not meet. This is him having the courtesy and the love to explain to her why he's not dealing with her. He says, it is not meet or fitting. It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. 
Now that's very much in keeping with what the predominant attitude among the Jews was to the Gentiles. The predominant attitude among the Jews of that time, and even many of them today, not all, but many of them today, especially I believe among the either the Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox Jews, is that Gentiles are dogs. You're either a Jew or you're a dog. It's like, wow, I, I don't even meet human, okay? I don't even rate human uh, according to that attitude. And they were not the only ones to have that kind of an attitude. The Greeks had that attitude. You were either a Greek or a barbarian, you know, and there, were, there have been others as well. You know, if you're not of our ethnicity, then you're, you're, you're the offscouring of our feet, you know? That's, that really isn't a good way to think. And Jesus wasn't necessarily racist here, he was simply expressing to her in the language that they used in that day. It's not fitting to take the children's bread, the bread of the Jews, those who have the law and the oracles of God, those who had the contract with God, which is what the law effectively was. It's not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. But now look at what this Canaanite lady says in the very next verse. And she said, truth, Lord. That's humility right there. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Wow. She was persistent with her need. And she didn't try to refute anything that Jesus said. She didn't argue at all. She was clever to be honest with you, but not in, a, not in a diabolical way. That wasn't her spirit. She was exactly what any natural mother ought to be, trying to get her child fixed. Be persistent with the Lord. Really? Now when he tells you no, he means no. But look at what she says here. The dogs eat from the crumbs which fall from the master's table. How do you, how do you refute that? How do you refute that? That's true. The dogs do. I know. Ours do. You hover around that table. If you've got a dog, they do the same thing. They sit there and look at you with those puppy eyes, even though they're not puppies anymore. They just think they are looking at you. Because what you have is infinitely better than that disgusting junk that we put in their dog dishes. You know, maybe some dogs like it. I don't know. I can't imagine living off of that stuff myself. But so look at what Jesus says in verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, Oh, woman. He didn't call her a dog now. He said, Oh, woman, great is thy faith. Great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. He granted her her petition for her, not only her persistence, but her faith. She believed on him. She came to him. She called him Lord. She worshipped him. Did I skip that? It says that in verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She implored him out of a mother's heart and out of love for her own daughter and out of desperation. And sometimes you have to get desperate with God. I don't mean you have to beg him. I mean that sometimes you really have to mean business with him. And there's other scripture for that too. My mind goes automatically back to... Uh, to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and would not let the Lord go until the Lord blessed him. Sometimes you've got to fight. I don't mean fight against God, but sometimes you've got to fight against the other things that come up against you. You have to fight against the circumstances. What was the other woman that for 12 years had an issue of blood? 
for 12 years was bleeding from her body. 12 years. And it spent all of her living on physicians and was not only not made well, but had been made, in fact, worse. And yet she knew that if she could get hold of Jesus, she could be healed. Yet he was thronged all around by a whole bunch of people. She had to fight against the crowd to get through the press to him. Jacob wrestled with the Lord and was blessed. The woman with the issue of blood pressed through the throng and received healing. This woman was persistent and humble and faithful. She believed on him. And so Jesus answered her prayer. He said, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And this sort of thing happens more than once in the Gospels. We've already come across one or two cases in, in, in our red letter studies. I don't recall if we, if we had the centurion that came to him yet uh, who was seeking for, seeking for healing for his servant. But there were people that Jesus blessed and granted them what they needed who were not Jews. And every single time he did that, Every time that he did that, it was, there was an indictment in the act against the Jews who did not believe. Didn't he say elsewhere in the Gospels, I have not found so great a faith even in all Israel. There were Gentiles whose hearts, even in the days of Jesus' ministry, there were Gentiles whose hearts were already open and willing toward God. They just, the time just wasn't quite right. Every time Jesus healed a Gentile, blessed a Gentile, answered and met a need among, among any of the Gentiles that came to him, every time he did that, it's like he was saying, you know, I know that right now all of this is for the Jews, but hey, Gentiles, look at this. This is a sneak preview of what's coming your way. Because Jesus knew, Jesus knew that when he died, that wall of partition, that division between Jew and Gentile that existed mostly in people's, or largely in people's minds, was going to be completely done away with. Because when we come into the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he becomes our Lord and Savior, and we become his people, his friends, etc., when we come into the faith, we become Jews built on Gentile chassis. No kidding. Might be a folksy way of putting it, but it's very, very true. Because Paul the Apostle talks about it in much greater depth over in his letter, in his letter to the church at Rome. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. And he, I think he tied that into outward circumcision and all of that. That was all part of the covenant and, and all those things. He said he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and whose circumcision is of the heart. The sin and the old sin nature and all of that that once ruled us and, and drove us, motivated us and all of that, having been cut away by the blood of Jesus Christ and we've been given a new nature and all of that. So congratulations. If you're a born-again Christian, if you are a born-again believer and a Christian and a child of the Most High God, you are a real Jew. No kidding. The whole law of Moses, which was, which was the legal document that 
that, uh, that bound the nation of Israel and the Jewish people to God, contractually speaking. That whole law, that whole contract was fulfilled in the person and the actions of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we came, when we came into His faith, we came into complete and perfect fulfillment of that law, such as no Jew of the Old Testament could ever successfully accomplish, try hard as they could. That's why they were always having the animal sacrifices, the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, uh, the Day of Atonement, which came around every single year. All of that blood, all of that stuff that had to be done over and over again. Jesus all wrapped, wrapped the whole thing up in himself and in his own accomplishment. And so we partake of that in him. And I don't like to use the word vicariously, but that, that's the meaning of it. We vicariously in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, fulfill the entire law of Moses in what he accomplished and how he did it. So, so long as we are in Christ and he, is in, and he is in us, we're good. We're good. And so we then become a part, having been grafted. And I know I'm, I'm taking some Romans and bringing that into our teaching here in Matthew 15. We are grafted in, if you picture, you know, the, the body of righteous believers, if you picture that as a single tree, we were Gentiles, never a part of that tree until we believed on Jesus. And when we believed and accepted Christ and he did his work in us, then we were broken off from that old tree we were a part of and our Gentile identities and all that. That's why I'm not really into any type of uh, ethnic pride type of stuff that really just is not in keeping with it. The body of Christ is made up of believers from all nations, all cultures, all everything. So, you know, you're not going to find a German flag hanging from my rearview mirror. You're not going to see me singing German songs and talking about how great Germany is. I don't think they are great anymore. They're being overrun is what they're being. And so, well, what's our identity now? The body of Christ is our identity. We're believers. That's our culture. You know, we were broken off from whatever our whatever tree we were a part of before when we believed on Jesus and we were grafted in to that tree which originally belonged only to these guys, the Jews. And so when this woman, this Canaanite, this Gentile came to Jesus, would not take no for an answer. And maybe there's a lesson in that in that, too. OK, I, I don't see how you can avoid that. She believed on him and she was persistent and she believed it wasn't that same. It wasn't that same kind of challenging spirit that comes in tempting the Lord, our God. It was depending upon him. It's an entirely different spirit. He answered that it was her faith. He said, oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be it even unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour, Jesus answers prayers. God answers prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. It depends on what you're seeking. And sometimes that's a tremendous mercy. But in cases like this, her daughter was vexed with a devil, grievously vexed with the devil. What does that even mean? Probably it means that she was possessed. Possibly it means that the devil just had his gun sights on her daughter's life and was trying to make her miserable. But generally, that's understood to mean that she was literally possessed with an unclean spirit. As of verse 28, she wasn't. God hears 
and he listens and he answers prayers. She had faith. We need to have faith. How much more we that have been grafted into that tree? How much more we that have been brought into the faith through, through pure grace? We didn't have any claim on it otherwise. Let's move on. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb. That doesn't mean stupid. It means mute. They didn't have the power of speech uh, for whatever reason. Maimed and many others and cast them down. I don't know why it says cast them. They threw them down at Jesus' feet. It's like, here, you do something with them. I don't know if that was their attitude or if it's just the language used here. And cast them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be made whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. Stop. There's the lesson right in there. And I'm not, I'm not reading six feet deep into something that's only six inches. There's a message in this. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me. These were people that, you have to remember something. This was not, these were not casual followers. These were people who had a hunger and a thirst for what Jesus had to offer. And not just for loaves and fishes, although that happens in this portion of scripture that we're reading right here. Not just loaves and fishes, but for healing. Not just for healing, but for what he had to say. These were people that wanted Jesus. And so you have to remember, these were people that had jobs. They had farms. They had cattle. They had obligations. They had families to provide for. They had responsibilities that were upon them because especially in those days when they didn't have the same kind of social safety nets that we, that we, that we get so grievously taxed to help support a lot of times, sometimes more, sometimes less. And I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing, okay? Sometimes these are good things. You may have benefited from them yourselves at times, okay? So I'm not trying to say that that should all go away. What I'm saying is these are people that a lot of them lived their lives very close to the bone, they did not have savings. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have retirement plans. They didn't have a lot of these things. These were people that were, they were sacrificing and putting themselves and their families at some degree of risk in order to follow and hear Jesus and to receive whatever he might be willing to give them. So they weren't just groupies. These were people that wanted to be disciples themselves and could be, if so be, they were really believing on him and it seems that they were or else why follow? So let's go on. So he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. How long do we continue with the Lord? How long do we continue? When we bring something to God, do we just throw it up to heaven, hope that it sticks and then go on about our business or do we... Do we continue with him hoping for some kind of an answer? 
know, we're told in Scripture to wait upon God. Well, he didn't answer my prayer within eight seconds of me sending it up, so he must be ignoring me. He must not love me. He must not care. You know God better than that. We all know God better than that. God cared enough to... He cared enough to answer a Gentile woman's petition before the appointed time. He cared enough to step outside of the ordained schedule, so to speak, to bless this woman. If he cared about her, surely he cares about you. She wasn't grafted into the faith. She wasn't saved as we are. And yet he answered her prayer. Surely he cares about you, a born-again believer whom he calls his son or his daughter. Do we persist? And I'm not talking about vain repetitions now in our prayers. I'm not talking about that. Oh, Lord, bless me with a Mercedes. Oh, Lord, bless me with a Mercedes. Oh, Lord, bless me with a Mercedes. They say that 2,500 times and God's going to bless me with a Mercedes. That's just vain repetitions. Jesus uh, taught against doing that much earlier in our red letter studies. But are we persistent? Do we persistently spend time with the Lord? Do we persistently wait to hear an answer from Him? Whether it's something that you hear in the quiet of your mind or in the quiet of your heart or whether it's just an impression from him that lingers upon your heart and you know it's from him because you know the word of God well enough to know. He said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Jesus, again, this is a reiteration of an earlier lesson. Jesus cares about the whole man. He cares about the whole man and the whole woman. He's not just in the business of saving souls and then leaves us to drift to get completely uh, demolished by life and the cares of life. He cares about the whole man. He wasn't even willing to send these people away without feeding them first. And so let's read on. And the disciples say unto him, when should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus saith unto them, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven and a few little fishes. Does this sound familiar? And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and he gave thanks because that's what a Christian ought to do with their food. Give thanks. Be thankful for it because we are higher than the beasts of the field. We are better than animals in that respect. God made us in his image, not them. He made humans in his image and so we ought to be thankful for that which we receive into our body. Jesus gave thanks. He gave thanks and break them and give to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. It's the same miracle he did. It's the same miracle that he did in the previous chapter or chapters when he had the 5,000 sit down by ranks and they took that one, that little boy they had, that had lunch and they took his little bit of stuff and they broke it all up, gave it to them, fed all of them. They had 12 baskets full afterwards. This time they had seven baskets full. It was a law of, it was a miracle of increasing returns. Give God something in faith and watch him turn it into more than it was. He does it. I've seen him do it with my own eyes, not like this with food, but I've seen him do it with money. I've talked about that before. I think I've mentioned it maybe in passing or a little bit more than that. Years ago, I had a protracted bout of unemployment. This is up in Washington State. Companies were not hiring unless you had a degree. It's like you couldn't get a job changing oil unless you were packing a degree. This was when shortly after Obama was elected. 
I'm sure there's a corollary there somewhere. I just don't know where there was. Maybe not, but it's easy. To, it's, it's fun and easy to blame it on him. But so I had a little bit of unemployment money coming in. And I wasn't just sitting around staring at the walls. I was looking for work. But the math didn't work out. Because you, if you've ever been on unemployment, you know that it's not much at all to live on. It's not equivalent to your income. And the math didn't work out. There was not, according to the math, there was not enough money in that unemployment check to pay all the bills and to have groceries. And yet somehow, and I'm not saying this, I really am not saying this like, oh, well, people, people slipped us a fiver or a ten here and there. That didn't happen. Somehow there was more in the bank than the unemployment check was. And the bills all got paid. And we had money to eat. And I had money to pay my tithe because it was still increasing, so it was still tithable. We trusted the Lord in a period of need and God multiplied the little that we had. And it was miraculous. And sometimes He does it miraculously. Sometimes He does it just by touching other people's hearts and they, they come in on the scene and they help in other ways. And then eventually it was all solved anyway, got a job and we were back on track. But He did that here. He did it elsewhere. Uh, earlier in the Gospels, he did the same miracle. And they did eat. They that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coasts of Magdala. And we're going to stop right there. Now, one reason why we went ahead and took the trouble to read through this account, okay, wasn't just because of the lessons that are contained in it, but the contents of the next chapter is there's a greater lesson in the next chapter that ties directly into this miracle and the last miracle, which was the same one. So we'll pick that up next week. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.